Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at POSI, the number two IVE. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zach Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today we have Taj Eldridge, an impact investor in Los Angeles. He's also the senior director of investment at Lacey. Taj, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. You and I have had a chance to connect before, and I've enjoyed our conversation so far. This is going to be great for the audience. Can you tell me, how has your background in economics informed your work as a founder in VC? Yeah, absolutely. Well, may, may I start with saying, before I, I got my graduate degree in economics, I was a poetry and literature major in undergrad. The reason why that's important is because I believe that Everything that connects us is about a story. Even in venture, even in economics, it's about storytelling. A lot of times people think that economics is purely mathematical and it's equations, and it is that, but it's also the story of decision-making and the story of prioritizing. And that's the same thing that we see in venture in the same way that we make investments. We want to make investments in companies that, that have a great story and that prioritize things that people want to consume and buy and their customers. And so I think, it, I think it goes hand in hand. I often say that Freakonomics was one of the saving graces for me because that really kind of explained what I think truly economics is as opposed to what people thought it is or think that it is. Excellent. What is, what is a good story for you? You know, I think from a founder's perspective, what a good story is is that, you know, when I hear, when I hear companies and when I, when, I, when I often meet founders, I ask them, how did you begin this idea? What did this, what did this idea originate at? And I think for me, that gives me an idea of how they approach the problem, how they approach the issue. I'll also say, too, that your numbers tell a story. There's this line that says, men lie, women, women lie, but numbers don't. And I think in addition to that, financial, pro, financial uh, uh, calculations, your profit and loss, projections, what have you, they tell a story about, about it as well, about your company. Um, so for me, I think it's really important on that end uh, to, to move forward. What can founders do to present a story that is aligned with something ethical and, uh, and to understand what the venture capitalists may be looking for when they present? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about a company yesterday that, that's having an interesting company around the, around the energy space uh, and around electric vehicles or EVSCs. And one of the interesting things about them was that they decided to present themselves as a prop tech company. Property tech. Exactly. As opposed to a clean tech company. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important because they kind of assess the audience and we kind of realize this is the type of reading and this is the type of novel that this this audience would like to hear. And I think that's an example of founders have to be ready to, to augment the story or to either kind of kind of have a, a, a variation of their story that's still aligned, that's still honest and truthful and authentic, but they have to understand what the room is asking for or the room would, would desire. You know, when, it, when I was an accelerator director, before Lacey, I was at the University of California, and uh, we used to have uh, founders that would always ask about pitching. And I would give them the story about how I learned how to pitch in an elevator, elevator style. I actually went to a comedian and ask a comedian how how do they engage the audience because when a comedian goes into the audience they have to engage immediately and they have to continually engage 
or they'll get booed or they won't do so well. And as a founder, and when we have these conversations, whether or not you're on a pitch stage or you're talking person to person to an investor or potential customer, you have to have the same type of energy and same type of focus to, to have that engagement. Excellent. So the authenticity component is very important. I agree with this. And the, yeah, adapt, the adaptability within storytelling is also a, a topic that we didn't discuss prior, but I find it quite interesting. I, I do see lots of founders having to to augment, like you say, their story based on conversations to the individual level. And I think you're eloquent in the way you're presenting it. It's great. Yeah, thank you. So in terms of philosophy and storytelling, you mentioned something about natural philosophy, and I wanted to tie into our first segment uh, as, as such to, to understand what that means to you. Um, how, how does it relate to impact investing in general? Yeah, so you know, when, when, I, when I think about it, when I personally think about impact investing, uh, I think about this idea that every investment that we make will have an impact, whether that's positive or negative we have to decide which route we're going to take on that. And, and, and I think also, too, the interesting thing about it is that from an economic standpoint, really kind of getting into it, we have to look forward. When I make investments and while, when I look towards my companies, I also look and see how the market's going to be uh, uh, years, years later. Uh, I think that we tend to forget that a lot of things are youth-driven um, and that youth would tend to grow old. And so uh, the reason I mention that is one of the reasons I got into clean tech. Uh, I started seeing a lot of people younger than me. I'm 45. I started seeing a lot of people younger than me desire sustainable products. A lot of people younger than me want want their companies to have ethical values. And so that that kind of frame my reference of the type of founders and the type of companies I want to be affiliated with. Because I see that these individuals now who may be 18, 19, 20, in 10 years are going to be 30, family, buying, purchasing power, what have you. Yeah. And so that's how I kind of looked at it. Um, and it's interesting, too, because that's how I was trained. When I was getting my Ph.D. at Claremont, we, we would do a lot of um, what I kind of call experiential studying, where instead of just looking at books or reading books on these, the process of GDP, mm-hmm. we would go down to the ports. We would count how many, how many shipping containers would come in. That. We would do that's analysis fantastic. That. Exactly. So that, there was this, this tactile way of learning that I think that looked at future-focused, and so I tend to take a lot of that into the way I looked at investments personally with my own fund and also how I, how I direct the investment strategies and philosophies for the companies here. As senior director for investment at Lacey, my really job is twofold. Number one, we have our own fund. We have myself and a young lady named Adriana Impus Figueroa. We, we make the suggestions on the companies to invest in internally. But then also, too, I talk with our companies about the, the, the strategies for fundraising. And I often say fundraising is an art and a science. Uh, the art piece of that is the fundamentals. Uh, I mean, your, your storytelling. The science piece of that are your decks, you know, ensuring that you have some interesting perform, performers, that you have your product market fit, your team makes sense. But the, but the art piece of that is how you tell that story. That's where the storytelling comes in. And so I think if you talk about an overall philosophy, I have a philosophy of art and science. And I think that really encapsulates my whole being. The art piece of that being a, po- a poetry major, literature major, undergrad. The science piece of that being an economist. And I think those two go hand in hand. Excellent. Now, I did read a bit about natural philosophy. I wasn't aware of the term when you first mentioned it to me. I think it stems from Aristotle and the philosophy of nature, the four causes. Mm-hmm. 
is that mm-hmm. does that sound accurate is there a way we can apply natural philosophy the art of storytelling let's say more qualitative into into that framework absolutely i think what people tend to forget and, and i'll give you an example and i know we'll dig into a little bit deeper about about lacy in general but okay. to give you a perfect example of how that relates um i typically have our founders here we're located in downtown los angeles and i typically have our founders we try to get investors here in person uh, because we want that that natural co- co- the natural connection that's here, um, and I'm, I'm kind of giving away a little bit of those secrets. But don't we, give them we, all. We don't have our meetings. <laughs> we don't have our meetings in boardrooms. We, we we have a smart home here, and it's a it's a it's a replica home with a with refrigerator, a table, chairs, a couch. That's where we have our initial meetings at. That's a fantastic what, set and setting. I love it. Exactly because at the end of the day, we're humans. There's a human decision on who the fund. They have their framework. They have the things that they're going to focus on, that they want to hit, that they want to see. Yes. But at the end of the day, you have to have a relationship connection, that natural connection that's there. And, and, and that's what we, do, we, what we tend to look at. It. The inorganic stuff, which are the decks, which are the, the, the conversations right. with the phones, they're not as natural as the in-person conversations that the founders should have face-to-face with the investors. And I think our investors appreciate it too, because it gives them a, it, it takes them out of the, you know, other VCs would know, you, you go through the same thing over and over again, you get a deck email to you, you get on a conference call. But, you know, if we, if we can coerce somebody to come down here from, from Seattle or from the Bay Area and enjoy this lovely weather in Southern California, uh, have this great food around in one of our smart homes. I think that's. I think people will take us up on that. I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, to to go back to stay on the topic of natural philosophy, storytelling, and learning the art, so to speak, and less so the mm-hmm. mathematical, the quantitative, the the physical structure. How does this inform you in terms of how you? how you coach founders, how you work with them to discover a story that may not, they may not have seen already and explore their brand, for example. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting, uh, typically a lot of the, the founders I work with are former engineers um, or engineers in training. And so they have a certain view of the world. And I think this is one of the things that university, especially if university, that they have acceleration programs and incubators, they need to really take key to. And we did it at the University of California. I, I actively went out and recruited English majors, journalism majors, to coincide with with our our founders there, because I wanted them to understand language. I wanted them to understand how to how to put emotion into what they were doing, because that that's one of the key. Here at Lacey. I have to mention that one of the things when I first came here that I thought was really a part of that is that Lacey, I think, is one of the the only incubators and accelerators to have an art director and a department of art where we fund four different artists in a year. Amazing. And those artists sit next to the, the founders and they create art that, that's influenced by sustainability, by the things that founders are discovering, innovating on. And it goes back to this philosophy that I say is that Innovation is spurred by creativity. If you're an innovator and you're a founder and you're around creativity, that whole idea about the natural environment, the natural selection, will spur more innovation and, and cause you to think greatly and creatively about what you're trying to provide for the for your 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 product in the market. And, and markets tend to go to things that are that are that are providing them the things that they need. Um, so th- those are there's some examples how we see like this type of philosophy of really kind of having a, and one of the things I think about when I, when I talk about that more succinctly is that there's an economic philosophy called 
the organic intellectual by F. Gorgansky. Okay. And the organic intellectual, what it means is that they take in the world community around them to create what they want to focus on. That's the whole idea for these founders is to ensure that they they are building products and services that are that are key to the market that they're going into, and they understand that market succinctly. Well, I love how you're integrating creativity into the growth process. It's something many people haven't discussed, and I, I really, actually, I'd like to unpack it a little bit more if, you, if you're open to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, creativity. How do you reset minds that may be geared toward process orientation, more mechanical, more engineering base, and outside yeah. of set and setting, I guess, uh, how do you coach your founders to understand the dynamics of the relationships and the stories and other things like this? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I hope I hope this company doesn't mind. I want to I want to mention this company. They're a phenomenal phenomenal company. I love these guys. Uh, it's a company called Amp Air. Uh, Amp Air is an aviation company that's in Lacey, uh, and they're based in the Hawthorne area. Uh, two co-founders. One co-founder is a kind of engineers, but one co-founder is a little bit more technical than the other. And I won't say which is which. I think that one of the co-founders kind of comes from a from a, um, a has a storytelling background, even though they're engineer, and I think they complement each other. And so the the whole point of saying that is that I think I think a lot of founders need to. That's the importance of teams, number one. Yes. Uh, but I think founders need to understand that teams are very important. And uh, there's a lot of talk about diversity, and and as a person of color, uh, I think when we think about diversity, we we think about gender and race. But I want to pause it and say that. We don't. We forget a lot of times about intellectual diversity I uh, and, and what we do. I could not. And, and having people, who, yeah, who think differently than what you do. Every company I've been a part of, I've always had a co-founder. I come in as an investor, and and I, and I always kind of like to get my hands dirty. So I've been an operational investor, but I've always had a co-founder who did not think the same way I did, and I think that was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but great. we respected each other. Uh, and so they didn't create robots, but because we didn't think alike, it allowed us to be effective in really kind of honing. So if I had an idea that I wanted to push forward, well, co-founder would say, okay, we need to think about this because I, I'm a contrarian uh, with that and vice versa. So I think when you talk about for founders, having that, that if you don't have a co-founder like that, having a trusted advisor network around you that are not yes men or women, but rather that are more diverse than you, uh, would be would be, would be op optimal for I that agree. type of focus. A, a moderator or intermediary that has a sense of uh, coaching is, I believe, very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, definitely explored quite a bit here in terms of natural philosophy. I would like to move on more toward the the inclusive component and dig into that more in terms of what's meaningful to you. Because again, I want this show to be geared toward positive impact, net positive impacts that are uh, on an individual basis and things that are truly meaningful. And you're, you're, you're sharing so much. So I really appreciate you being so open about, uh, about your worldview. Uh, again, yeah. I think I'd like to go back to economics for a moment and uh, to unpack for you and your experience how economics has informed your work, both as an advisor and as a founder and a VC? Yeah, absolutely. I think economics, like I mentioned before, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's about how people make decisions. Um, and I give you a perfect example. I used to be a COO and a board member and, and uh, equity partner in, a, in an apparel company. And the apparel company is probably most known for dressing a lot of guys in the NBA. We had exposure over in China where we sold product. We made product here in the United States. We sold it in China. 
But even even just the pure economic value and thought of producing locally and selling abroad was something that we, we took into consideration and, and definitely used economic models in our pricing structure to pull it. So that's on a very, very tangible level. Yes. But on, on kind of a, a philosophical level of economics, um, what we also looked at as, as people's desire, what makes people want to buy wise what makes people select this company versus that company. Because the thing about apparel, which is really interesting too, was that, you know, there, there's a fickleness in it with brands that, that people tend to go for. And sometimes the fickleness is a lot of social scientists see that fickleness has some, some, some basis in it, right? There, there are reasons why people tend to gravitate one to one brand another. And so if you take that same type of mentality about things that we look at in, in the standpoint of um, apparel, Applied some of the similar similarities to other CPG products, mm-hmm. um, and as an example, I, one other company that I like that kind of utilize it as well is Bevel. I love the way that Bevel told stories. I love the way that Bevel had had really kind of focused on how do they have op- optimal pricing structures yes. to do it. One other thing that I think is really interesting, and I'm gonna give a very good shout out for Los Angeles, is that. Game theory is a huge part of economics. It's actually one that I love and I study tremendously. And, and part of that is is we want to focus on the gamification. You know, I, I would go to a number of VC events and VC panels, and it's the same thing over and over again. You have VCs spewing and talking so much. There's even a Twitter account that says VC congr- VCs congratulated themselves. Oh, yeah. We, we, we've seen this account for sure. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to those guys. Exactly. But... But a few months ago, uh, there was an event, and I love it because it, it really kind of focused on gamification. Instead of having just traditional PCs just, just sit there and, and do panel talks, and I was part of it, they did a game of Family Feud. They had five PCs on one team and five PCs on another team, and the questions that were, that were asked of us during the game were questions that founders had uh-huh. that they wanted to know, that they normally would ask us in a different setting or one-on-one, but because it was presented in a way that was a little bit different, um, it was it was very interesting for the audience to get in grasp. Also, too, because there was competition, that there was this this race to from the VC standpoint, the race to provide the most valid answer from that background. So there was a lot of authenticity. There was a lot of honesty there. And there was can you tell founders. me again what I think Family Feud was a television show? I I think I saw yeah. it once or something. What's the yeah. premise there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Family Feud is a television, television show originating in the, in the 70s, I believe. Now, now the actor Steve Harvey hosts uh, the show now. And it's essentially a game show where the, the, the contestants, they answer questions based on, you know, 100 people said that this, that this question is there. So as an example, the question that we had was that, you know, one of the questions was like, you know, what are, what are the three things that, that what well, the five things that investors in the C-stage look for in your deck? You know, there's a lot, you know, there's, there, there, you know, when you have those questions like that are, are, you know, what are some of the things that we should look for in your pro forma? You know, there's a lot of VCs that might have different answers that are, that are similar and the same. Uh, and so this was allowing us to really kind of dig, dig deep. At the end of those questions, the, the VCs had opportunity to explore even more why they gave the answers that they gave. But the show is still on. I, w- I would advise people to watch the show. Uh, but also, too, we're going to do it again. So we're going to have another show in April somewhere in L.A. 
So wow. definitely stay tuned for that. Try to attend locally as well. It sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. Okay, great. And so let, let's let's go into I, I think second part of the the show. We we wanted to mention inclusion and uh, VCs how, and startups what they can do to improve inclusion in, in their in their operations and in their mm-hmm. mindset and frankly I think in the way they st- tell their story because there's tremendous value in that as well. Um, I found a quote that was um, from Mitch Kapoor in 2015 uh, at Kapoor Capital. He mentioned uh, genius is evenly distributed across zip codes, uh, accessed and opportunity or not. Um, I think you paid homage to to this in your reference Mm -hmm. on Lacey with talent is universal, opportunity is not. And we've we've all heard of this quote and what Kapoor is doing is amazing. They have incredible IRRs. Uh, they are practicing inclusion as well. Um, h- how does this idea of uh, even distribution of talent or genius inform the work you're doing, and what does it look like for f- the way you engage with founders? Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely love Mitch Kapoor. Uh, shout out to Kapoor Capital. I know a lot of the folks there, uh, and I definitely take that quote from him because I think it's so true. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Dallas, uh, far from Silicon Valley. Um, but, you know, I had a mentor from afar. Uh, the mentor that showed me what I, what I saw, because I, cause back where I grew up, I grew up, uh, I would say I was, grew up in rich in love, but I'm not rich in finances. Yeah. And uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Reginald F. Lewis. Reginald F. Lewis was a, was a Harvard-educated lawyer. He was a private equity, and he was the first African-American that was a billionaire. Really? Uh, he bought a company called TLC Beatrice and McCall's, which was in the apparel space. And he was a member of Kappa Alpha Psi. Um, I, I joined Kappa Alpha Psi um, at Harvard. Um, I got into private equity, all because I was influenced by him. And I, I think that, you know, that really kind of got to me because I think that there are several other individuals who are like myself who are in places like Wyoming, Kansas City, Central Florida, who may not be in, in the financial centers of the world, but they can they can see these stories. And again, and even the way that I heard about this gentleman was through his book. He had an autobiography, a biography rather. And um, he passed away when I graduated from high school, but his trajectory and his path influenced me so much that I see that. And so that being said, for me, I think that founders who, who are, in, are in these places are far flung. And I, and I kind of take a Steve Case philosophy. Steve Case is the former president of AOL. He runs a fund called Revolution Funds, and they focus on the flyover states, the flyover yes. cities. What and are it's the, fly, the same with flyover states that the, their plane flies over, but not many people stop Look, at, or something like that? Yeah, the, the, the states that go from as you go from New York and California, the states that fly over. And I also have to have to say, I give shout out to another another Texan as well. Uh, she's from Dallas too, Arlan Hamilton, who has the company Backstage. Oh, and yeah, her focus great. on, on uh, yeah, on uh, she labels them as under underrepresented founders, or underestimated founders. Excuse me, underestimated. Yeah. Oh, and underrepresented. I like that term underestimated as well. It's it's really yeah. wonderful. It, yeah, can you so tell me more? So, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. No, go ahead. I go wanted ahead. I wanted to ask you more about your experience with mentorship and how that can be used to in, include people more in, in an organization and create a, a, a mindset of diversity like you mentioned? Yeah, well, I, I think I think for me, I, you know, I mentioned that um, I, I'm from Texas, um, and, and 
there's a such thing, I think, that Southern hospitality never leaves you, no matter how, how long you've been away. That's great. Uh, and, and, I, and I I started out as a banker, like I mentioned, in commercial banking and investment banking with Wells Fargo and with UBS. And I kind of took that that role. I became the traditional banker, banker hours, and I, I kind of became what was around me. The whole idea about natural, this, this bit about natural philosophy, that you become what's around you. The, the, the focus came for me when I started thinking about authenticity and I started being myself. Uh, but it's when I start having a little bit more success and a little bit more comfortability in that. And so I think that that, that authenticity also includes Southern hospitality. Hmm. And I know that, that time is finite, but I, I often when I mentor people, and many would tell, tell you this as well, the last thing I say to them is that, you know, I'm going to take time out of my day to give you 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Let's have this conversation. Let's do it succinctly. But what I ask is that you do the same to somebody else. Stay it forward. And I think I the more that happens... That, that, that it becomes a culture and not just a person. There's this phrase in the community that says, um, bury the man, but continue the plan. And I think for me, the, the way that I approach mentorship is not about one-on-one, but it's about a sense of community. Mm. And, if, and if a lot of us kind of focus on that, especially those of us who've been on the path and been successful, mm-hmm. we focus on a type of mentality. Um, I think that we will have a better tech community and we will see the growth of Southern California as a tech as a tech ecosystem and other areas as well. So that's kind of how I, I, I look at it. The other thing about it too is really being efficient with mentorship. So uh, I'm proud to be a part of this this platform called StartupStarter.co. That's a digital platform to do mentorship, and I and I love it because it allows me to mentor via video content. So that way I can I can kind of mentor a few, and I do it for free. And the reason I do it for free is because when I was a founder, there was certain terminology, certain strategies that I wish I would have known that it was hard for me to try to get somebody to, to get a meeting with me. So I love the fact that things like Startup Starter allow people to get that and to have access to it. Can you tell me, uh, in, in SoCal Tech, uh, what companies and founders are, are doing for diversity and inclusion in your experience, and what sets us apart? Yeah, well, let me tackle the first part of the last part of the question first. What okay. sets Southern California apart? Um, you know, I, I've been in, I've had companies that's been in the Bay Area, I've been in the Bay Area companies. We actually had a company that, that focused on Napa Valley. It was really interesting there. I love it. Jump off wine. But um, I think that for me, what separates Southern California from Northern California, and I'm sorry, it goes like the storytelling. We have a history of that in the entertainment space. Entertainment, movies, music, they tell stories. They encapsulate us. They, they give us this emotion. And I think that that is the strength of, of, uh, of our companies. When I look at a company, like I, I'll mention some of our favorite non-lazy companies. So when I, like when I look at a company like Honey, uh, I love Honey, a good, great acquisition. But I love their grit and I love their story. I even love the story how they were financed and how long it took, how many investors said no, and how they cobbled together funds from, founder, uh, from funds here locally in Southern California. I think that's a great local grown story. And I think that also, too, what makes the Southern California tech scene different from others is, is there's a huge bit of collaboration here, there's a sense of collaboration, not only with the founders, but with the, with the, um, with the accelerators and the funds. Um, I, I don't know if I mention it, but from an offshoot of poetry, I'm a huge fan of music. My wife was a singer, my son is a musician. And so I really kind of equate the tech scene to the music scene. Uh, the founders are artists. They create products and services that the consumer buys. 
whether that, that is a traditional consumer or enterprise, someone still buys what they create and they innovate on. The funds are the record labels. They finance the artists and they finance the founders, and they do a great job of doing so, and they pick and select and provide capital for them to to grow and to, and to continue to provide their product. And then incubators and accelerators, we're like the radio stations. We amplify the voices of the founders. We work hand-in-hand with the regulators or the funds to really create an optimum environment for those artists or those founders to grow. And so that putting that lens of music on my vision of, of, of tech, I think that's what Southern California is, um, and I think that that's what's, what's there. Um, of course, I'm in clean tech, and there are some really great, phenomenal clean tech companies that are here. And I know we'll probably get into it a little bit later, but there's a there's a difference between clean tech 1.0 and clean tech 2.0. There are different types of founders here in clean tech, but companies like Ampere are really doing great. I love them. They're building electronic aviation. There's a company in an incubator called Envoy that's really looking at mobile as an amenity for apartments. And then when I look at companies outside of of uh, of, of clean tech, uh, some great phenomenal phenomenal companies like like I mentioned, like Honey, which I think is great. Excellent. And a few others. And you made that, a, that you get, made a great reference to Arcadia at Freewire, founder of Freewire, who oh, yeah. I also hope to get on the show. And if it's appropriate, you mentioned something about Costa Rica. I think you went there recently. Oh, yeah. That is going to be the place that I'm going to retire. So I, I, I think that uh, the thing that excites me about Costa Rica and Belize, Belize is right on in Costa Rica. Belize is, is focused on ecotourism. So from an environmental clean tech standpoint, I think there's going to be a lot of collaboration between between the, the Central America and, and here. Um, I, I went to school for grad school in Chile and Santiago, and so I have a I have a love affair with Latin America, um, and I, and I think that you know the good thing about Clean Tech 2.0 is that there's internationalization of the, the focus. Um, we've been seeing a lot of international funds coming to Lacey. Um, I've spoken in Chengdu, China, in Abu Dhabi with some of our companies in India. Um, and so I think that the reason for that is that the problems that we're solving are global problems, are universal problems. And they're realizing that, you know, I think Clean Tech 2.0 is no longer really kind of focusing on and needing government support, but they're realizing that they need to have an opportunity to scale and really build products that are relevant to not only society, but also provide impact. And so I think the way they come from it, and when I see companies that are like, it's a company called Zeo that I really love. They, they approach it from a need standpoint first, and the impact is a byproduct that's, that's just there, inherent. Yes. You know, that's, that's the, the, impact that's is the best way, in my opinion. <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I see that a lot tremendously. When, to see founders that struggle through a problem and reach an outcome in terms of their understanding on how to deliver it, it's, it's magical. Absolutely. One other thing I want to add really quickly, and, and I hope my he doesn't mind, I got reached out to you by a gentleman named Pedro Arce, based in the East Coast in Boston. And he had this really interesting idea of, of doing something from a clean tech perspective, an accelerator perspective, on the Galapagos. And the Galapagos are on my bucket list. Um, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see more things like that. Uh, I had a good colleague who went down to Antarctica, and they did some, some work there focusing on climate change and working with some of the scientists there from an innovation standpoint. So I'm loving the fact that you're seeing the internationalization of clean tech uh, really moving forward. One last thing I would add that my I had an intern in from um, uh, a program called Pledge LA, which is funded by the Annenberg Foundation, and that whole organization focused on inclusion and diversity, where they're getting 
underestimated, underrepresented individuals into into venture and tech serve as our our, um, our interns. And I had one this summer by the name of Alpha Barry. And Alpha and I wrote co-wrote an article on the site called Future Africa that talked about the need for clean tech to encompass places like Africa, places like China, places like India, where the need for electric transportation, where the need for renewable energy is huge, and you can really make a dent for founders. So I think that that's something that we really love to see and want to see moving forward. Well, you're going to get a lot of emails into your inbox now. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I have seen also some, some of the C-Corp parent company and the uh, foreign subsidiary model quite frequently, and it seems to be a, a trend that is uh, moving in a great direction. Yeah, I think another trend really quickly I think that I think that we've been seeing, and if I want to stay on clean tech, is that I think that that especially here that we've seen, we mentioned companies like like Freewire who are fantastic. I've been seeing a lot more strategics, uh, corporate investors or corporate VCs come down towards an earlier level, seed stage. Yes. I've been seeing a lot of family offices get involved in investing. Direct investing. I've been seeing a lot yes. of private equity. So the, these have been complementary capital coming. And I know at one point a lot of VCs would say that clean tech needs patient capital, especially hardware, which we, we dabble in. We, we do a lot more hardware than anything else. But I've been seeing a lot of that, a, a lot of family offices and a lot of, uh, a lot of PE coming into the, into the fold and realizing they can make a dent in it. Um, and from the family office standpoint, you know, a lot of the, 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 the capital from, from actors, uh, and I, I want to give a shout-out to, to, to family offices like the DiCaprio Foundation, James and Susie Cameron, uh, the Hammer family. Those organizations are definitely making a, a valiant effort into combating climate change and really putting their capital where, where, where their activism is, right, and realizing that, you know, capital is needed for that, that bit of activism in addition to the vocal activism. Excellent. Can you tell me, uh, when is uh, the next cohort starting and how can people get in touch with you and what's the best way to get engaged? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're here at Lacey, like I mentioned, Lacey is the Los Angeles Clinton Incubator located here in the Arch District in, in Los Angeles, uh, www.laci.org. Our, our focus is our energy transportation and circular economy. Um, we just finished recruiting for our cohort. Our cohort lasts two years. Um, we we pick, we have about 65 plus companies to apply and out of the 65, we will select 15 to move forward with. Um, we do have a fund that's in, included within the, the company and that fund only invests in companies in the portfolio. So that's one of the things that we tend to look at. And, and so, um, you know, that's, that's the area we look at. We're going to launch those companies and, and, and build a new court in April. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I, I love engaging on social media. Zeka and I do it often. Um, I'm on Twitter at EconoAhmad, that's E-C-O-N-O-A-H-M-A-D. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn as Taj Ahmad Eldridge. And I, and I post quite frequently there my thoughts and musings on the venture industry and a couple other things as well. Taj, you're, you're a force of nature and a wonderful man. It's a, it's a true pleasure to have you on the show. Zach, I appreciate it, and I thank you for the opportunity and the time.